Good evening. This is Three Valleys Radio and it's time for Football Bloody Hell. On the show tonight we got Dave Hilda Pryor. Adam Davis. Ricky Hyatt. And Yeovil goal scorer and hero from Saturday, Alex Fisher. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Football Bloody Hell. Uh, Again, myself, Dave Pryor, is in the hot seat again. This is two weeks in a row. Uh, Enjoy it, listener. Enjoy it. Um, My guest this evening, uh, first of all, is Mr Ricky Hyatt, as always. Hello, Rick. Evening. And making his second appearance on the show. Well, both of these people are making their second appearance on the show. First of all, we've got Adam Davis. Hello, sir. Evening. And hot off the press, fresh from his goal at the weekend, Alex Fisher joins us. Hey, guys. So uh, I think that's probably the best place to start, isn't it? So uh, Yeovil Town... And uh, getting a 1-1 draw against Boreham Wood this weekend. Um, Alex, let's start with you. T- talk us through your goal. That must have been a great feeling for you to get back off the mark uh, for Yeovil. Yeah, obviously been a few games um, that I've played now without scoring myself. So as a forward, you kind of always want to get that away early. Um, and uh, yeah, it was good. The, my, my fellow frontman, uh, Jimmy Torre did a uh, great job in creating the chance out of very little. Um, and I uh, was, yeah, lucky enough to just follow up at the right time and um, still felt like I had a little bit of work to do, but was, yeah, pleased to sit hit the net and everything after was, was uh, relief as much of it, as much as excitement, if I'm honest. Um, so um, yeah, it was good to get off the mark. Just a shame that we didn't, didn't really either, didn't really get a second when I felt like the performance deserved it. Yeah. Um, Adam, I'm just going to bring you up in this because I know that you're an Alex Fisher fan, particularly from his first time around. So you must have been extremely pleased to see his name pop up on the Viddy printer. Very pleased. Would have liked to see the uh, a winning result also appear on the Viddy printer. A really, really <laughs> good start, I must say. Um, I was I was really impressed with it. I was able to watch the highlights. Um, really pleased to see that and naturally going to be the first of many. Uh, Rick, just going to bring you in because um, you see... Um, Yeovil Town a few times this season. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, uh, I believe it's the sixth draw in, in 10 matches. I've been looking at it and thinking, hopefully to be a few more wins in there. But they haven't been losing many either. So um, get a couple of wins in the next couple of games and then suddenly... Yeah, look, but you also have to look at healthy, the calibre of the opposition that Yeovil have been playing. They've played most of the top top four now and, and not lost to them. Just the, just the thought that occurred to me, is this actually now a penance? If you score for Yeovil on the Saturday... You've got to come on the football bloody hell on the following Wednesday. Because after Josh 
claimed his goal that you last week tried to take off and playing playing at this level. It's it was it's great. I I never really wanted to leave in the first place. Um, and with the, the new, I think I might have said this the last time. Um, and when you've you know your contracts run out and you're not going to get any uh, any any wages through the next month and you got offers on the table, you you, you can't just wait. Correct me if I'm wrong, and... Alex. That was at the end of the that was the season that Yeovil went into the national league. Is that right? At the end of the league two season. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, correct. Um, so um, I've stayed in the area in terms of like this. It, quite a few years now so um it was yeah no brainer for me um really pleased to be back um from being a bit critical would like to have had a couple more goals to my name by now but you know sometimes um you know it can take a few games for that first one to come but no it's been great me and the me and the wife got married about three months ago she was very keen for me to stay local as well because football can take you all over the place many congratulations um oh, thank you yeah i just thought i'd pop that in just in case she ever hears it because then i get yeah that's true luckily we timed it that it's on this same day as our uh, anniversary so i only have to remember one day which is a perk <laughs> But no, uh, on the football now, I, I'm like I, I'm, I'm buzzing to be here, um, and got a real point to prove, to be honest. Um, and we want to have a really successful season. And with the stat that you just picked up, Ben, um, you know we've out of ten games, six draws and a win. That's seven games undefeated. It's actually a quite an impressive stat. We're hard to beat. We um, we just need to, some of the games. If you've seen them as well, we're not far off beating teams two or three 0 And the games we actually lost, I remember Barnet at the time. I think we're top after the game they beat us in. Yeah. We could have been two or three 0 up at half time, yeah. and we've come away with nothing. So, like even the defeats, I'd say Eastleigh was a good point because we got quite heavily attacked in the second half. Altrincham, we were winning. You know, Barnet, we could have won. These, I know it's could have, would have, should have sort of stuff, but. Um, it's not like we're really scrambling. A Boreham Wood, we should have, we should have, we could easily come away with three points there with the territory we had in the match. Um, so yeah, it's it. We're really, I think I said this in the after in the post-match interview. Um, it's really fine margins away from being actually quite successful. Uh, but it's just hard, even for us players, but I imagine more for supporters to really dwell on that when you're not seeing the wins. It's nice to get some good performances, but ultimately the table doesn't lie on points and it, it's so frustrating for us. I can imagine it's tearing your hair out in the stands thinking, come on, just get that second goal or keep a clean sheet or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, it's, um, but no, really, really pleased to be back and um, I'm, I'm really gunning for a, a top seven finish. So just very quickly then, because you mentioned the fact about um where you are in the table at the moment. And you often hear, particularly players and managers alike, well, it's early in the season. We don't take any notice of the table. Come on, Alex, you've been having a little look, haven't you? Isn't that what players do? Yeah, I mean, Regardless you, of where, you, you, where always, you, always, you always keep an eye on it. The one thing we would just, we're conscious of, or certainly I'm quite conscious of, is I'd say sort of 10 games in, you start to see, you know, the top four or five will probably stay up there with who they are at the moment yeah. so you just don't want them to get too far away but I think as um, Rick had sort of alluded to just a minute ago um, we're playing teams that are currently in the top five or when we played them 
were in the top five. So teams in form. And, you know, some of these, like your Wrexham's, your Chesterfields, I mean, even Boreham Wood on Saturday, top five teams that, you know, I don't, I don't see, if our results are as tight as they are against them, um, you know, we're really not far off it. So as much as you could look at the table and, and think, well, we're a little bit, you know, it's just starting to, there's, you know, st- gaps starting to appear. We, everyone looks at it every now and again, but until it's probably post-Christmas, I don't think you can take it too seriously. We just know we're basically three wins on the bounce away, which we know we're very capable of doing from being right in the mix. And then all of a sudden people go, oh, now Yeovil's the informed team. You know, don't want to play them now. Um, and that's what we're, we're gunning for. So, Adam, hang on, hang on to a lead. Go on. I was just going to say, hanging, hanging on to a lead for more than five minutes would probably help. I mean, the last two games. I mean, every so now and again, that would be. <laughs> it would be yeah, nice. It's a, it's a common theme. Uh, I think yeah. there's an element that when we have conceded, we suddenly realise you've got something to lose and we're actually better. Yeah. Straight, straight to the point there, Rick, to Alex. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No, I, I, I do like to try and check. Uh, uh, yeah. Pop the old uh, positive spin on things, but no, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's we're not we're not stupid. The the staff know the score, we know the score, yeah. um, and um, it's even more frustrating when you say, right, lads, let's make sure this doesn't happen again, and something similar happens a little bit, or like within a week, um, and that can't really come from the staff. I think that comes the responsibility of us players. Um, you know, they they can do everything. We can prepare how we want to prepare, but ultimately they can't kick the ball for us, and you know. Yeah organise us when we're out there um, mid-game. So, um, yeah, there's an, there's an element of responsibility that falls on us. But, yeah, I, I think the weekend was given the way... This, you might not notice it from the stands, but the wind's surprisingly strong, even when it's just a little breeze. Um, so to have gone one up against the wind, knowing that it's going to be hard for them to go in behind, if we'd stayed one up, we I think we see that game out yeah. quite comfortably. But at one all they're just a corner away from this game being completely spun on the head. And that's, you don't want to let your defenders always have to think they're only one mistake away from potentially losing the game. I fear an air of, feel an air of responsibility to, as part of the front line, to try and just take that pressure off with the second goal, a third goal, um, when we're um, when we're on top in team, against teams. And not only that, um, you mentioned about the performance, um, particularly um, in, the, in the second half against Boreham Wood. Um, Yeovil came up against um, a goalkeeper in Nathan Ashmore, who for the second time uh, has picked up a man-of-the-match performance. Adam, I'm sure you know all about uh, Nathan Ashmore. I mean, he's probably considered one of the, the better keepers, if not one of the best keepers in this division, isn't he? Without question, he... I think the main benefit he has is he has so much experience at this level. So many keepers that have been here have often, uh, and Yeovil included, have often had loanies for one year that are from Premier League academies that just come here for the experience. Whereas with Ashmore, he's been here for a, for a long, long time now. I think he was at, um, I think it was at Ebbsfleet United before he moved to Boreham Wood, and so he's been in the National League for a fair amount of time, and as a result, has probably played against the vast majority of strikers in this league, um, Alex not included, but quite a few uh, strikers that have been in this league for equally uh, as long. So I think he's well-adversed in this, and I think he just, yeah, he's found his level, and he's very good at that particular level. Yeah, as you've touched on, Rick, as well, in the games that you've seen, Yeovil have shown that they're able to to create, and the games haven't, there haven't been a lot in it either way, has there? And that's going to be a a good thing to see them through, particularly from a 
fan's perspective when, okay, you might be looking at it and you want some of those draws to be wins, but, you know, there's not any big defeats in there. So they're very much part of the contest all the way through to the 90 minutes. Well, it's like we were saying last week with um, with Josh, you can have these performances against, like we've said, the teams that are in the top top four or whatever and put those performances. It's putting in the same performance, I think, against the teams that are lower down and you're going to batter them. You've if just you reminded me, Rick. Pardon? Josh Josh wanted us to speak to Alex about a conversation that he had with Paul Skulls. Do you remember? Yes. <laughs> it yes. was about... Uh, sorry, Alex, just putting you on the spot there. We were having a conversation last week <laughs> about... Where was this <laughs> about um, players up and down the leagues and about how, technically speaking, there's not a lot in it, but it's all about the decision-making, which is obviously a lot quicker... Um, at the top of the game and I understand um, you've had a chat with Paul Scholes about this very topic oh no I think I was um, just quoting a Paul Scholes quote ah, so um, in Josh's defence he did say oh I sort of heard this second hand was that what you said Rick? yeah <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. he didn't he didn't directly give you these words then Mr Scholes <laughs> no no goodness I'd be a bit starstruck if he did um, <laughs> No, I think it was, yeah, I think there was, there was a, um, I, I mean, I'm pretty certain, I, I would have probably seen it somewhere or read, watched it somewhere at the time and mentioned it in the changing room, so I can't specifically remember the, the words now um, to quote, but it was along those lines that, you know, most players can keep, you know, have a reasonable first touch, they, have, they can do as many keepy-uppies as the next guy, but um, when it comes to actually performing on when the pressure's on, um, being able to maintain a composed head, an element of decision-making and um, the composure to actually perform the the skill uh, accurately, whether it be a pass or a shot or whatever, is, yeah, they're like the, the difference. But he said one of the biggest things was decision-making. More often than not, they will make the correct decision. Uh, it doesn't allow the opposition chance to nick the ball or, or turns, uh, you know, the start of an attack you know we might pass the ball maybe every now and again behind someone or too far in front but for them they they'd always find the right pass and execute it well um and yeah, having the con- having the confidence to play that pass as well because otherwise you know if you're overthinking it you won't take that risk you play the safe ball whereas the good players play the good ball and rely on their it's, technique it's, and whatever i mean often i i'll fall back to i think i will if you overcomplicate your game you can you try and do too much I, the, some of the best bits of advice are literally play the nearest shirt and move and you'll be surprised after a while how much yeah. space actually opens up it's just it's not football's a really simple game that seems to be completely over complicated by people thinking they need to, I, I completely track myself in that bracket um some of my better games i think well i've not given the ball away that much at all really but i've not really opened them up but then i was like i managed to get the ball back in areas that i wouldn't have got if i just passed it first or second time um mm-hmm. accurately <laughs> hopefully um but um yeah i love i love i love little quotes and, and bits and bobs that you see from the top level from the best players because you realize they're human beings as well um and you can almost relate to their stories or their personalities and think god they were just in the same position as us when they were seven or eight or nine or ten and growing up and you see a sense of vulnerability in them that you feel in yourselves and it's inspiring when they sort of break it down to its simplest form that you think, well, if they're saying that, then there's got to be something to it. Yeah. So moving it forward then, because uh, at the moment, obviously there is no um, top flight football or championship football 
um, due to the international break. Um, I think this is a sentence I don't think I've ever said before, but England have been relegated. Uh, I think I think that's a first, Rick. I think so. I think so. As the older statesman on the show, can you tell us otherwise? Not, not in. Uh, mind you, England have never won the World Cup in my lifetime because they won it two months before I was born. So my dad always used to tell me, "We've never won it in your lifetime." No, I don't think we've never been in a competition that has relegation before, have we? No, I don't think Normally so. Just um, knocked out and away you go. So I want to talk about this Nations League format. Adam, I'm going to bring you in on this because I don't actually think UEFA have got this one wrong. I think the issue possibly is the timing in which it's all had to be played, particularly since when we had COVID and then everything got condensed and bunched together a little bit. I seem to remember the inaugural Nations League tournament in England playing Croatia, and there was a was it a last minute winner or possibly Kane at, at Wembley, and it really it's felt something. like that England really wanted to win it, and there was a real buzz around it. But I think because of where we are in the world at the moment, it's maybe not quite got the same gloss as possibly um, it was first introduced to do. No, I, th I, th I think that's exactly it. So um, my understanding was when the Nations League was made, it was in response to a lot of people saying, we don't care about international friendlies. We've got nothing to play for. That was the that was the original thing. So UEFA said, OK, we still want to keep the international breaks. We still want to uh, play the national teams. So as a result, we want you to play against bigger teams that you're more interested in. We, the, uh, for an England fan, they thought we'd be more interested watching Italy and Germany, which we've got tonight and on, on Friday, uh, instead of the likes of Moldova and San Marino which to an extent isn't wrong. The, um, the issue that I think a lot of them has found and where the, where the balance isn't quite right is what exactly are they playing for? So they're playing for, and I think the way it works is obviously in the top division, you then top your group and then you go into a sort of a mini American style playoff format at the opportunity to qualify for the Euros. So there's an awful lot of things you have to tick off well, this to, is get, why to get something to... that clubs have already done uh, or yeah, this is already why done. England have to take note of being relegated don't they because can't this affect their coefficient and they can possibly be looking at going into a tournament as a second seed if they were to stay there 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 is that real concern however you could also flip it on its head now that we're in so there are actually contrary to what people forget is that there's actually four divisions of the nation's league and you have an opportunity to qualify for the Euros in each of those four divisions. It just happens to be whoever's topped it. So uh, of which in that playoff spot is when Group A plays Group B, uh, well, Division A plays Division B, plays Division C and so on. So in a way, it actually might be an even more straightforward way to win something. I think I think Scotland got through to their version when they were in um, League B, as opposed to Wales and England who were in League A at the time or something like that. So perhaps there actually might be an added incentive. The, I think the issue still remains of there are too many things they have to do to then even play for something, which might be even, which even in itself is very difficult because you would hope, albeit 
most leagues, and we've, we can all name times where this hasn't been the case, the likes of Italy, Germany, France, England are already qualifying for the Euros. And actually, as a result, they still have nothing to play for. It's brilliant for the, for the Lithuanias and the Moldovas of this world, but not necessarily quite as, um, not as quite as much interest in England. And I, I think it's quite harsh that, uh, obviously, there's a lot of talk of Gareth Southgate at the moment about their performance in the Nations League when on nine times out of ten people don't care about the Nations League until it's an excuse to have a go at the manager which uh, I think we're all we've all heard far too many times before yeah I mean Rick you only need to look at the results I mean I'm sure it hasn't bypassed you that Moldova getting two last minute goals against Liechtenstein yesterday <laughs> you know that that's what my day was building up to that particular match who Moldova and Liechtenstein. <laughs> oh, yeah, those, those continental giants. But when we, um, we made the final of the, of the Nations League, and as um, Adam said, it was the whole thing was it was better than playing friendlies. That was the idea that it was going to take away friendlies. Everyone thought it was a brilliant idea. Now, all of a sudden, we get a few shoddy results, and it's the worst idea in the world. Um, I was just going to come in on that. Um, is it just a case of if England are playing better, we're enjoying it more? Yeah. Is it just a, just a case of that? Yeah, that's all it is. Football fans are the most fickle supporters of any sport in the world. You're either the best team in the world or the worst team in the world. There's no, there's no rationale, there's no middle ground, there's no sensible in it at all. You just, it's, it's always a knee-jerk reaction. Alex, do you watch a lot of international no. football? Are you for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Well, actually, just before I answer that, just to chuck a question out, because I heard it on, on the radio today. But I wasn't sure. Did you say with the uh, Nations League, if we were to be in the situation we're in, it could affect our seeding in future tournaments? That's how I saw it. Because if if so, um, the question that makes a bit more sense now that I heard earlier was, do you go flat out to win these games, but then you don't allow maybe some of the peripheral players like an Ivan Tony, for example, right now to see, well, would he be worth trying? Or do you go for the tried and tested Harry Kane? Hmm. that you know what he's going to do so therefore do you do you want to see a result or do you want to see a performance and actually gain something for it for the next tournament and if there's something on the line you probably want to make sure you got the result but then it might be hard to filter in players to see what they can do when they've deserved the call up with England at the moment it would probably be a case of do the opposite of what Gareth did so he's stuck with giving the trial and tested and they haven't they haven't come off so you know it's, you've got to give these players an opportunity to play sooner or later and there is an element of there's a, a greater element of competitiveness in these matches which is always the criticism of the friendlies you could get make your debut like Ivan Tony if he made his debut in a, a meaningless as it were friendly then what how does that prepare him for playing in a world cup whereas I suppose this is supposed to be that mm. that middle ground in between the two so it's it's, it's difficult so I'm kind of all for the idea of it. Um, and I'm thinking if I was at that level, I mean, cross, just a sniff to play for the country would be just dream come true kind of stuff. I don't know how they would consider it, given the physical output of playing Premier League, Champions League, you know, um, every other week. Um, but then it was like, if we did go on to... The, it, uh, it's Germany, right, next, isn't it, for us? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so at the yeah. time of recording, it's this evening, Monday night. Um, so the... Um, yeah, of course. Um we, um, you know, do you go there and go, well, we've played our strongest side and still not got something out of it, the next game's in a major competition? Or could you sort of say, well, I tried, we were already relegated, 
yes, it might affect our seeding somewhere else, but at least we got something out of it because we saw what other players might do in certain formations. I, I, it's, I mean, it's a question I wouldn't want to, <laughs> I wouldn't be a, you know, wouldn't want to be the manager to answer, but it was just an interesting um, point nonetheless, I thought. Well, Rick, you've mentioned about Gareth Southgate's um, squad selection, and there's things. Well, there's definitely things that I would I would possibly change. I, I think we all would. But from just from just playing devil's advocate a minute, um, do we think that because this is the last time they're going to meet up before the actual World Cup squad is announced, is why he's gone to tried and trusted? Because he didn't really have time to sort of bed anyone else in. Because even if he brings other players in who are sort of on the peripheries or are pushing for it, is two games going to be enough to make a judgment call? So that's why he's gone with the Maguires, the Shaws. Yeah, but, but with the Shaws, that that was a particular point I was going to make. This would have been a good opportunity to find a left back because currently England's two Premier left backs are not playing first team football for their clubs so come around the, the World Cup you're going to end up with uh, Saka back playing left back again probably how do you see it Adam see you shaking your head there I just I can't bear the idea of wasting Saka at left back that's all it is mm. um so that's I've I've questioned this loads of times it's the balance between the fact they don't get enough time as a national manager to actually embed any sort of idea philosophy um, which you can sort of understand, to, to be honest. The issue I've always had, and and I think is where a lot of fans have a lot of gripe, um, is the idea that a national team should be picked on merit rather than necessarily who you know the tried and trusted. And I think that's realistically the balance that they have to pitch between the two. And, and as Alex rightly highlighted, I wouldn't want to be in the manager in that position either to, to, to really pick the two. But there is, it is very difficult to see why you wouldn't uh, go for a little bit more experimental in a game like this upcoming Germany game when we go back to effectively treating it as a regular friendly. Um, I think I saw in the, that they've taken X amount of the squad to the game and they've left out the likes of Fikayo Tomori and uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold. Now, Fikayo Tomori won Serie A last year and has continued to play every minute in a very, very good AC Milan side. Is that not good enough excuse to put him in over Harry Maguire, who spent most of the time on the bench? I'm sure Rick will explain to me why that's a good thing. But it's those types of questions that you... I think you do have to question is that they don't get that much time, so you've got to make use of what little time you do have. It's difficult, isn't it? It's, it is that tried and trusted and on form. What, what do you do? But the, as, as a United supporter, I would say that the loyalty to Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw is baffling. It really is baffling. But do you, One, having said that, do you think yeah. that just, just say if the FA decided that Gareth Southgate's time is up and they're going to bring someone in right now before Big the World Sam. Cup. <laughs> Take Big Sam, for example. Okay. okay. Right, use that example. Obviously, that's right. probably not going to happen. <laughs> never say never and all that. But is there still an argument that if a new manager was to come in now with new ideas and new philosophies, they'd still go for the child and trusted of a Maguire and a Shaw yeah. because there is just no time to then start to get to was a new pattern of play? Yeah, there was something I heard on, on the radio just as just as I was, I was coming, coming home today. Has 
the Southgate managership reached its completion of its cycle where, you know, you get the situation where you hear the same voice over and over and over and it's no longer inspiring and whatever. I mean, has he... Which is why I've started hosting this podcast. Is it? Some say. Some say. If I got the job, I wouldn't tell Jordan Henderson where we were training because we managed to pick a squad without a minute and the bugger still turned up eventually. How does that happen? Alex, how does that happen? What happened there? I didn't, I didn't, I haven't heard this. No, so uh, Rick is just not a very big fan of Jordan Henderson. And every time somebody drops out of the England squad, Henderson's the man that seems to get the nod. Uh, Are you a fan? Um, I mean, to be honest, uh, I I can get a, um, you know, the supporters' point of view in in terms of uh, there might be a, a, Maybe a lack of inspiration there in terms of things, you know, it's pretty on the eye as some and some players, but I I certainly take his career, his career path, like he's achieved a heck of a lot. Maybe it's is it international level stuff now? I don't know, but um I guess we I don't ser- really have a lot of deep lying midfielders, do we? From one footballer's view on someone at that level, I I'm I'm in awe of of uh, career paths like that myself. Yeah, could- Hilda, it's one thing asking me to slag off Jordan Henderson, but Alex, yeah, you're quite right. A fellow pro, isn't it? He's not going to say anything. <laughs> no, I, I'm, 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 I'm. Yeah, it's pure, it's pure inspiration uh, when I see anyone that represents the country. I've got to say. So, Adam, as what I was just touching on there, um, we talk about Henderson sort of coming into the squad and sort of being like a utility man of sorts at the moment because he's not always in the Liverpool squad at the moment, has got injury concerns and is sort of going into his 30s now. Are we, as much as we are, have got an abundance of talent going forward, are we sort of lacking in certain areas when it comes to sort of a shielding midfield role, for want of a better term? I think, I think it's... Certainly who's playing consistently. If you take like Calvin Phillips, for example, who's hardly kicked the ball this season. That's precisely my point is the, I think the only reason we ever ask those questions is the injuries uh, that are uh, allowing them, shall we say. It's that I think this is probably the most amount of squad depth England has probably ever had in terms of actual players that 10 years ago, when we had certain international players that we would have argued weren't necessarily of the same calibre and we were sort of just being pulled along by Rooney and co. Um, we'd have died to have, you know, half a Jordan Henderson, despite what Rick says, or uh, the even the mild concept of a Jude Bellingham would blow most of our minds. And now we've got him and Foden and Rice and all these players that are all of a certain age and going, this could be the England side for the next 10 years. And that would be a really good thing as opposed to, or is that really what we've got for the next 10 years? So I think I think we've actually got quite a lot of depth in quite a few positions. The only thing that the best question to ask is, can we get the best out of them? So at the moment, England has pretty much played a 3-5-2 for as long as I can remember and had the three centre-backs. And we've had Walker play at the right centre-back instead of right back and things like that. And it worked very well. It, you know, it got us to a World Cup semi and a European final that, you know, these are things that we thought we'd never see, certainly not for a long, long time. And then if I would argue probably our weakest position is centre-back because of Maguire's out of form, Stones is injured, 
Eric Dyer can't decide whether he's a midfielder or a centre-back, these sort of things. Why are we playing three of them? It, it's, it might be going back to more of a traditionist idea of, my opinion has always been that England should copy or at least be inspired by particularly successful formations that are working for the club sites, because then you don't have to take quite as long to sit there and, and, and learn a new system. 3-5-2 was very sort of popular quite a few uh, couple of years ago when Gareth came in and, and has done it very well. But I think they do need to be a little bit more fluid with the times to get the best out of these sort of players. You know, sitting there and having Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice as a holding midfield there, both together, is quite negative. And I think that's been a, a criticism put on him for a long time. Well, there must be a better way of getting best use out of all these players, particularly when those types of players are injured. If we lose Declan Rice, suddenly the whole of England looks significantly more concerning if we're having to rely on the right knee of a Jordan Henderson and Calvin Phillips, who spent most of his life on the bench this season. Do you think? Do we think then, guys, that Southgate takes fair criticism when it comes to playing England with the handbrake on? When you look at the likes of Bellingham, who, you know, a lot of people say that he should be an absolute first name on the team sheet now in this England side, and yet there's still a question mark about whether he will possibly even obtain any minutes um, in Qatar. Is this the kind of issue that we've got, that we've got a Conservative manager that's blessed with a lot of attacking talent and the two don't necessarily go hand in hand? I think the real issue he has is that he could play all those exciting attacking talents. We lose 1-0 to Iran. This is the worst thing that the world has ever seen. So you can sort of somewhat understand an element of conservatism, even if... It, we go back to the the element of fickleness of everything wants to, everyone else, everything should be perfect until immediately it goes wrong and then it's the worst thing the world has ever seen. And he was in touch was... on though, um, Rick. I was just going to say that we, you know, for how Gareth Southgate is perceived at the moment, like he's touched on, he's come in at a time which was really bizarre circumstances because of what happened with um, Big Sam and his pint of wine and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then he comes in, gets to a World Cup semi-final, then goes one step further. So, you know, it, it, is it always going to be a case of this is likely to be his last tournament because you don't really tend to get international managers, particularly at England level, that oversee three, four, five tournaments in a row? It's, it's funny with Gareth because when he was appointed, it was like, um, to my mind, it was like appointing a yes man. He was already in the system. He was establishment. He was the establishment pick for it. And he's, he's not in, inspiring or whatever. Um, plays a very sort of like boring, conservative type of football. But then when we started doing well with it, he started getting credit for playing exactly the same way, but it was tournament management. And we were playing tournament football. And everybody was happy because... They sit through a fairly dull game and win by the odd goal because we meant we progressed through it. So the end justified the means. But it's when viewed in isolation, it's not exactly going to put, put bums on seats. seats. But then that's not his job, is it? If, if he comes back with a piece of silverware, nobody's really going to care how we, how we played in the build-up to it. Alex, would you say there's an obvious difference between international management and club management obviously you've got the obvious in terms of it's not every day but as rick touches on playing tournament football you've got to get your mindset and set your team up possibly slightly differently because it's going to just be quick fire games 
over a six-week period, obviously, if you um, if you see yourself through to the end. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I um, I remember when we when we played in the last was it the World Cup where if we didn't beat um, Belgium in our group stage, we had the easier running. Um, yeah, correct. And, yes. Yeah, and it was so on paper you'd argue that we had. Not and he changed really the team around for it, didn't he? Yeah, and we and it was to be honest, the excitement it gave us. Even though I think the football purists know we kind of got there. Yeah, yeah, sure. So <coughs> yeah, just so, um, in that particular tournament, if we uh, if we didn't beat uh, Belgium, we got the on paper easier running. And yeah, if the football purists might think, well, we've not really come across any of the big hitters. We've not necessarily played the best football, but. It captured the entire nation's imagination, and therefore, like on on Rick's point, yeah, the the uh, the means did justify the ends. Is that the right way round of saying it? <laughs> it? Feels wrong in my head, but yeah, like it was. So in terms of um, like the style of play, you'd have taken it for the excitement of going. Oh, we've got the semi final next week. We'll all get round to one of the TVs or that you know that kind of thing. And we'll watch it in, you know, in the local or what have you. Um, Those are the things you remember, aren't they? You remember where you were for big games, yeah. not, not how you got there. Um, but, I mean, if you can get the holy grail of both, then, you know, you'd probably win the tournament. Um, but in terms of the management style, uh, it's a tricky one. I mean, I guess you've got to... I imagine there'll be a lot of pressure from the, pre the managers these guys are coming from, the teams they're coming from, to not get injured. Um, you know, there'll be pressure on that. They won't. They have what a few days with each other before they go and play in any of these games. So they're obviously very in tune with how to play certain formations. But you know, even the best in the world, I'm sure, might not gel. You know, immediately. So I think sort of playing. I can see why you fall back to the tried and tested because you you then go. Well, it was the safer option, but it was the one that I felt sort of it sort of justified. Um, I'm trying to think how well best to articulate this. Um, Don't worry, mate. You're on a you're on a Three Valleys Radio podcast. It's it's okay. Okay. <laughs> I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's um it, it could be quite easier to go with what's familiar over something that's new because um the risk of going something new is it's one of it's the highest profile job in the in the country uh, outside PM um, for me. But um, yeah, you're going to be scrutinised whatever you do. But for me, I'd probably take a boring result but it has to be a result therefore um for advancement in a in a competition yeah, yeah. but it's, like, it's like go on we, we were saying about uh the game against germany as we record it's it's not happened yet it's going to happen later on tonight it's a dead rubber we've been relegated from this it's the last game before the world cup and harry kane is starting up front so, so what happens if we get to a tournament if, and he's unavailable we haven't tried the option. We haven't tried the alternative. And now it's See, I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. I was really, I'm not disappointed because I love Harry Kane. I think he's a fantastic player. I love watching him. But I would like to have seen, if I was one of the other players, just thinking, well, I couldn't be in better form to have deserved a chance yeah. here. Uh, yeah. Let me show you what I can do. Um, it's a free hit in that respect. Um, yeah, I'd have liked to have seen maybe a bit of rotation for this particular fixture. Yeah, because there's no consequences, because we've been relegated. But what they're going to do, relegate us twice. We can't do that. So, you know, it's the, it is the, you don't get very many opportunities where there are no consequences to your decisions. 
and this is one, so it's a bit. Bumpy. And it does it does have a knock on effect because I seem to remember, you know, it, it's it's easy to say, I suppose, when you know you lose a, a big final like England did against Italy. But I know when looking back, and I think there was a lot of people saying that we had, you know, we had someone like Calvin Lewin on the bench who could quite easily have come in just taking the pressure off Kane a little bit as we're going deep into extra time and just change things up. And we've got someone like Calvin Lewin. Okay. Uh, he was definitely in form going up, up to the Euros and obviously a different type of player to Harry Kane, but an example of no matter what kind of fitness Harry Kane's in, it doesn't matter who we've got sat behind it because it just won't come on unless yeah. there's a, you know, he has to come off injured. And then even then, you wonder if he then might push someone like Raheem Sterling up front and Rather than, change it all around that way. Yeah. And there's also just, I mean, it's really sort of micromanaging, but there is the fact that when you get to latter stages of a tournament, you get out of the group and you get to the knockout stages, you're going to want Harry Kane, should these games go to penalties, you're going to want him on the field. So he has to start the game, every game, play the entire duration of the game, play all the extra time, and just so he's still on the pitch for the for the penalties. I just think you'd be, be better off having a look at options. And even if, if Tony comes on and, and he plays like my nan, then at least you know, and you'd, you're not taking a chance in a tournament. I think, I think I'd have a question of, it, it comes back to the flexibility of how, how flexible can England be? And I guess it actually turns into a question to Alex more than anything is, I'm aware that Dave and Rick aren't exactly at the top ends of professional football in the same way I'm not. When you are under a new right. manager or even under an old, uh, old manager that things aren't necessarily going quite to plan, how long does it take to actually learn a new system? Because the, often the main excuse given is that England don't have enough time. Well, how, how much time in your experience over, the, over your long career does that sort of thing take place? I think it... In theory, it shouldn't really. Every place, every footballer from our level to the top level uh, will understand different formations. They've grown up playing certain roles. You know, I've always been in certain positions. So you, you know roughly what you need to do. It's more gelling with the players that you're put together with. So, for example, um, I would know that a certain player doesn't like to cut in on his one foot. So after, like, say, I don't know, you've got a, a right-sided winger playing on the left side, you know, and I'm unfamiliar with that person. I'll be making a run into the box early, but he'll always be chopping before he crosses the ball on his right foot. Um, it's it's having, like, a few weeks of being able to get used to what people's quirks are. Um, I would say sometimes it takes longer than others, but often after a few weeks, and that's just where pre-season is often so valuable is because that's where you can do it with no, but not no pressure because you want to get results and you need content behind your performance. But um, you certainly uh, you certainly need a few weeks to get used to a certain style. And the managers, I can imagine, have their own players as well at a certain time. So if they inherit a squad that might not be suited to what would be their go-to formation, often how many times do you, I mean, I don't know if they throw it as an excuse, but how many times do you hear at the top level, well, oh, it wasn't my squad or, you know, it's an excuse, but um, for me, it shouldn't take too long. Everyone's familiar with formations. It's more the players getting used to whatever is being implemented by the manager and then the players you play with, how they fit in that. Will this guy turn? Will that mean, okay, I know he's going to get the ball. I saw a great, I'll just finish this point with this uh, quote from Berbatov. He scored a goal. I can't remember who it was against. But he said he knew Nanny would always do one extra chop than the other next player. 
So he waited, he held his run back to the edge of the box. And when he's about to cross it and you think it's too late, he chops, everyone goes forward and he's left on the edge of the box for the square. And I was yeah. like, oh, I'd have made that run early, but he knew his player. He knew what he was going to do. That's that's where I think the the gelling comes from. Um, and that's where managers, obviously, it's his job to get the best out of his squad on the training field. So he prepared on the weekend for it. How important Sorry, is it, Alex, that you, That's all right. Just, just on that, uh, and it's, it's a very good point. Um, just how important is it that all the players get on? Because I don't want you to, you know chuck anyone in a bus here or anything like that but you know we're all human we've all worked in scenarios where i'm sure people get on with people um better than others and and stuff like that i mean does that have an impact um if you've i don't know relying on a group of players where there is a little bit of divide i've been really fortunate that i have not come across many changing rooms where I've seen that kind of a divide or cliques or things like that. And I have to say it does come from the management to stop that from happening early on. And that's, I think it's important. The personalities people recruit over the years, that's become more and more important. The amount of times I will get a text from someone saying, Oh, I had so-and-so message me about you. And that was a manager or a coach from five years ago to get my personality background. Um, you know, they do really do their due diligence. So um, I think that nowadays that people kind of vet personality as much as they do quality. Um, I think you need an element of competition. You need to be able to tell someone that's not good enough, but not in a way that's critical. It's like, hey, your standards are better than that. I know you're better than that. That will inspire me more than calling me every name under the sun and saying that I'm, you know, shouldn't be here or something. So I think as long as criticism, which here we've got very good culture for that, there's you don't really get away with too much, but it's said in the right way. And once teams sort of start entering that bickering, getting a bit sort of, I guess, poisonous almost kind of stages, that's when you want to worry, I think. And it's there's certainly not been much of that in my career. I've been fortunate, but I have certainly when I was younger growing up and it was more of an old school changing room, I experienced and witnessed plenty of that. Um, and it never really got the best out of the guys. Um, so, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's something that's it does happen, but um, I think I'm fortunate enough to say I've not been part of ones that where it's been too savage in that respect. So with the, the World Cup then very much on the horizon, and we all know that it's a sort of a new format um, this season in terms of when it's going to be. It's going to be different. It's going to be a Winter World Cup, of course. Um, Adam, I'll start with you. Does that change your enthusiasm at all for a world cup with where it's positioned is it difficult for your psyche to kind of turn into the fact that there is actually a world cup on the horizon and is your world cup fever starting or not <laughs> i i'm not sure to be honest it was i different feel like this time doesn't it? it it does and i think i think it's more the anticipation of it's it's usually the only sport at that particular time you're ever really concerned with and it sort of feels like a bit of a a pause on what could be a very interesting or very underwhelming season depending on j just because of what form people might be in going into the tournament and it, it it feels a bit strange to sort of not be at least mildly excited about it it'll be hot for them but it'll be freezing cold for us it's, it's that type of it does have a weird feeling on it. That being said, 
will I be as passionate about wanting England to win because it's November as opposed to July? No, it'll be exactly the same. So it's so I think I think the anticipation isn't there, but I think the excitement once we're in it will still be the same. The same with you, Rick. Uh, I, the sooner it's gone, the better. But then I felt that right from the time when the uh, Set Blatter in his beautiful open or fair and not corrupt at all decision to hand it to Qatar after the, the same could be said for his decision to hand the World Cup to Russia, two of the worst decisions possible. Uh, they, they shouldn't be happening in yeah. that part of the world at this time. It's ridiculous. The only positive is it's not messing up the cricket season, which is uh, normally what happens. But uh, no, it's just I, I've seen no other than the cash that went in everyone's back pockets, allegedly. Uh, I don't see any benefit to it at all. And David Beckham's let himself down in my eyes. Promoting if, the if this, thing. this is definitely going to be sort of the overriding kind of um, feeling with with this World Cup, I think. And if England were to go all the way, would it be met with a little bit of bittersweetness about the whole thing? Probably not. I mean, we're that desperate for success. We'll take it at, at any cost. But I mean, just, I mean, without wanting to get on the high horse, I'm just a purist about it. But I, it's not a case of not wanting change. It's not wanting unnecessary, unwanted, buggering everything else up in the sporting world to accommodate having the World Cup in Qatar. It, it, was, it always was and always will be a ridiculous decision, in my opinion. Well, we've, we've had fatal consequences, haven't we? Let, there's, yeah, there's, let's absolutely. Let's be honest about this um, yeah. leading up to this. Is that a price um, worth paying? Yeah, exactly. Ridiculous. And I think Eric Dyer even came out this week, didn't he, to say that um, they were talking about ticketing for, obviously, family members and um, friends who you know, might want to come and watch the games. And he said there's, you know, there's individuals that he's not sure he wants to come over to, to see him play because of, you don't quite know what the reaction is going to be like yeah. on the other side. And, you know, we, we're supposed to be having a World Cup as everything to be inclusive and to be a time to be enjoyed. And it's the festival of football. It's the pinnacle of football. Um, Alex, do you think because of those reasons... This World Cup is always going to sort of have that little bit of a asterisk against it. Or as Rick says, if England come out with a win, rightly or wrongly, kind of going to be forgotten. Um, I mean, I a difficult one. Point, and I, I actually am totally in that camp. I, I'm not for how it's come about, where it is, when it is. But I'd also edge to what Adam said, which is, for me, I'm still a kid when it comes to this kind of thing. Like, it's the World Cup. It's super exciting. So I'll, I'll get behind the team 100%. I'll get behind every game. But it doesn't really sit right. It, and, it, and I'm not... And I'm, I have to say yeah, almost word for word for with you, Rick. I, it's not because I don't want to see change. I just... I don't agree with how it's got where it got to, um, personally. Uh, but the, the, the main thing for me... Uh, going into it is that it's an excuse to watch Mike Bassett just before it starts, which I do before every. Uh, is that your thing? Love it. I can't get enough of that film. It's a I noble say it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah, the one thing I will be saying is, come come what November time, I'll be getting Mike Bassett out, and uh, yeah, 
I'll uh, yeah get right behind it. But no, I it's it's an unfortunate um, how I think it's come about. But um, I'll be I will be interested to see what it's like because players will be halfway through a season. They won't have burnout as much as maybe they would in the summer. You know, from that perspective, that will be interesting. But the the human rights stuff behind it, the how it got there, um, is really shady for me. It will be unusual, Alex, for for you because you'll be you'll be playing league football during the World Cup, which of course doesn't normally. That's normally true. Happen, yeah, it? yeah. Hopefully, yeah. If they could, yeah, some inspiring performances might get us <laughs> to not concede after five minutes of scoring and and score more than one goal a game. <laughs> Who knows? And you you can't watch it I might suggest not watching England if you don't want the only yeah. one nil job. Well, funny, <laughs> funny you mentioned that because we were having a little look ahead to the schedules um, for the station around the World Cup today. And as far as I'm aware, Adam, I'll come to you on this one. They haven't as yet changed any of the kickoff times, particularly in National League level, around um, the World Cup games at the time of recording. Presumably there will be some sort of plan in place because you, if you have, a, for instance, a game that clashed with when England are playing, then you're going to, you know, it's going to be reflective in, in crowds or lack of crowds. It's, it's an interesting one. I, I don't think there'll be anything that will be imposed by the FA. I don't think there'll be anything opposed from a, from a higher position. But if I was the clubs, I would be having that conversation. I, w- I would be at least trying to see if there ways yeah if there is a way of slightly readjusting the times obviously the main time that kickoff times ever change is through broadcasting and quite frankly broadcasting aren't going to care because they've got the world, the world cup to occupy here there and absolutely everything that they've got to do so i don't the other question will be is just truly will it actually make that much of a difference are fans that passionate about their clubs that they're going to go and watch their clubs over a World Cup match. The only time where I think that might be questioned is if England are playing. I think if it's I think if it's generally anything else that the Premier League has got, uh, any other club that's in the EFL, uh, if Scotland play, oh not Scotland, sorry, because they're not in it. Wales, if Wales aren't playing, or I don't know, Iran or any other team, I think they'll carry on as normal. Have you been? Have you been? Thanks, Aid. Have you um? Have you been giving any directive or anything yet, Alex, about the schedules around about that time? No, actually, it's a really interesting point. I never even even considered that. Um, often as players, you're probably the last to hear anything, if I'm honest. Um, uh, but yeah, we we will go off what comes out off um from from the the Vanarama um outlets, new media outlets, or, or Twitter, or whatever statements they make. Um, but no, we've not heard anything. We've not heard anything in that respect. So, as you've heard, we've only got a few minutes left, so um, we will we will wrap this up very shortly. I just want to leave by saying about, um, I'm sure you probably would have seen John McGinn's comments um, about his rear end. Uh, Rick, did you see this? <laughs> yeah, I got, I, I got, I got sent that. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> um, interesting. Alex, I'll, co- I'll come to you. For those of you who haven't seen it, he has said that if it wasn't for his rear end getting him to the top end of football, he'd probably be playing somewhere such as Yeovil Town. 
Yeovil, of course, were quick to reply to that on Twitter to say that if Mr McGinn isn't doing anything, which I don't think he is between the months of November and December, <laughs> then why not come on down to the Oval Town? Alex, has this been sort of talked about, talked about amongst the boys? I think someone. We, I think everyone saw it. We mentioned it once in the morning, um, but not much was said about it. I guess it's just one of those offhand comments. But I think the uh, the media team dealt with it very, very well. And, yeah, yeah. I was going to say a good I, thumbs I up to the media team. They <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's all we've got time for, then, boys. Rick, thank you very much for joining us. No always. props. No problem. Adam, thank you for joining us again. No, thank you. Alex, thank you very much for joining us and uh, hope to see you on the score sheet again soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, more to come. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to Football Bloody Hell.